0: You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. For now, we're going to jump into the Gospel of Matthew And uh, we're going to do what we did last week where we actually go back to the Old Testament and talk there for a while before we get into Matthew to talk about uh, what Jesus is doing in today's passage. So I don't have anything up on the screen today, so just hone in, focus, and we're going to get into some interesting territory. Again, you're going to find when you dive into the Scriptures, oftentimes, you're like, I don't understand what any of this is about. It's so strange. It's so different. And part of the reason behind that is because it wasn't written to you. The Bible is written for you, but it wasn't written to you. It was written thousands of years ago in a different culture with people who thought different things and thought so much the same that sometimes they didn't have to clarify anything. They were just like, yeah, we all know this statement, so I just say it point blank. And we read it today, we're like, whoa, what's going on? So sometimes in order to understand the Scriptures, we got to dive real deep. That's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, First, uh, to get into the right frame of mind, I want to talk about sacred space. Sacred space is uh, quite a a big image that goes on in the Bible. We could get pretty deep into it. Um, We're not going to go super deep tonight. Uh, We're just going to work off what we learned last week about chaos. Okay. So last week we learned that the oceans were seen as kind of like a a demonic place. That the oceans got partnered with Satan a lot because it was a chaotic place. It was unpredictable. You didn't know what was going to happen there. And so they they imagined sea serpents. They imagined uh, giant creatures that could devour you. And when they look at those sea serpents in light of Revelation, they start to look at those sea serpents as images of Satan. Therefore, the sea became kind of like this demonic, chaotic place. And uh, God would say, like, one day we won't deal with that chaos anymore. Revelation talks about that, right? If you look at the water before God's throne, did you ever notice it's clear, it's glass, it's crystal? The water's been tamed. It's not chaotic anymore before God's throne. In fact, Revelation goes so far to say that when the new heavens and the new earth come, there's no more sea. The idea for uh, someone in, uh, with an ancient mind would be like, ah, the sea's gone, the chaos is gone, Satan is gone, all of the torment of, of all that demonic world out there is gone, and all we're left with is the utopia of this new Eden that God has planted on the earth. So, sacred space. Uh, the the uh, sea could be seen as unsacred space where demons dwelt, so could the desert, okay? Really, if if you had an uninhabitable place, a lot of times in ancient minds that got synced up as like a demonic place. And since deserts are uninhabitable, at least for humans, right? We can't just walk out into the desert and get by very well. We're not warthogs. You don't just go take a bite out of a cactus or anything like that. Um, but uh, uh, because those were uninhabitable places, they oftentimes in an ancient mind, like there's demons out in the desert. There's demons out in the sea. And uh, then there's sacred spaces. Sacred space, like uh, uh, you'll notice when Moses comes in contact with God the first time in a burning bush, God says, take off your shoes. This is sacred space. He's understanding, like the space I'm in right now is not neutral territory. It's not normal territory. It's not demonic territory. When Moses comes in contact with the burning bush, this is sacred territory, and so the way that he walks and talks and lives in this sacred spot needs to be different. Israel had the same practice with their tabernacle. So the tabernacle in the Old Testament was uh, this place where God dwelled. Okay? He taught uh, all of his people, God's people, Israel. He said, I want you guys to make a tent. And this tent is going to be a place that I take up residence in. Yes, God is everywhere everywhere. But sometimes he puts special manifestations in sacred spaces, and this tabernacle is one such space, okay? So he says, you're going to make uh, a tent, there's going to be different like levels of sacredness within the tent. There's going to be one room inside that tent called the Holy of Holies, and that place is like the most sacred of sacred spaces, okay? No one should walk in there willy-nilly lest they die. When, in fact... He said just the high priest, he should really be the only one to go into that space because God's presence is so tangible inside there, so sacred inside of there, that if you got too close to sacred space, you might die. Now, Israel had to figure out what to do with themselves because though God is sacred and perfect and sinless, guess what Israel wasn't? Any of those things, right? human beings. Israel is human beings. They're not perfect. They don't live up to the 600 laws God gave them. They don't live up in, in numerous amounts. They can't even live up to the 10 laws. Like I was like, just focus on these 10, right? <laughs> so many times they break all those laws. And so they're imperfect. They're unsacred, but they're in God's sacred space in his presence. And so you have to do something to deal with this. If this space is sacred then how do you keep it sacred with imperfect people around it? Here's what, they, here's what God told them to do. Okay? This is the tale of two goats in Leviticus 16. God said, bring me two goats. Uh, both of them are going to uh, be used in this tradition, but both of them are going to be used two different ways. Okay? So one goat, you're going to cast lots, and one goat is going to get attributed to God, get attributed to Yahweh. And so God is going to have you bring that goat into his presence and sacrifice it on behalf of your sins. That goat then, the blood of this innocent goat, is going to be used to sprinkle throughout the tabernacle to purify it, to cleanse it, to keep sacred space sacred. Once a year you're going to take this goat, sacrifice it to God, and then use its blood to to make the place sacred again. I know, we don't think this way very well. In fact, we're like, that doesn't sound sacred. This sounds very dirty, right? <laughs> some, some of you are just walking around with Lysol in your head. Like, who's bringing it all down? Uh, but that, that was how they kept it sacred. This goat died on our behalf, just in the same way that when we look at Jesus on the cross, we're like, Jesus was that goat. He died on our behalf. His blood covers our sin. That's what that goat did. Okay, So that was the first goat. One goat is sacrificed to Yahweh. The other goat, this is the one that we don't talk about a lot, the other goat is given to a zazzle. And again, remember how I said, like, everybody in their time, sometimes they knew things and they didn't explain it? This is one of those times, right? Because they're just like, the other goat gave it to a zazzle. And we're like, okay, who the heck is a zazzle? He's not mentioned in the Bible really outside of this place. So what's a zazzle? Uh, As we look at the Bible, we start to understand the possibility that Azazel was a demon of sorts. um, Because, again, demons hung out in the wilderness, and that's where this goat is going to go. And there's also a verse in the Bible that talks about goat demons. That's kind of weird, but you find a verse about goat demons. So, (laughs) possibly Azazel's a demon. Uh, He's also been connected to some of the false gods as well. But either way, Israel is supposed to give this goat to Azazel. And so you're like, hold up, only, only, you're only supposed to sacrifice to God. And you're absolutely right. This goat was not a sacrifice. This goat was not a sacrifice to Azazel. Here's what would happen. They would bring the goat up, and all of Israel would gather around the goat, and they would begin to impart all of their sins, all of their iniquities Everything that's wrong with them, with their country, with the world, it all got attributed to a zazzle. So imagine just in the same way Jesus carrying the weight of the world's sin on the cross, so this goat is carrying the weight of Israel's sin on itself. They would then take this goat, one Israelite would take this goat out into the wilderness, and it was his job to take the goat to a place where they knew the goat would never come back. Because that's the last thing you want to see, right? (laughs) Right. All right, we put all our sins on it. You take the goat away. And then one day, someone's just out there mowing the lawn and the goat of sin is returning to us. They didn't want that to happen. So someone's job was to take it far away so that it could not return. In fact... When we look at what the Jews later did, they wanted to be so sure that that goat didn't return that they just kick it off cliffs is what they would do. So they would take it out in the wilderness. Though God said, just let the goat wander in the wilderness, it's a Zazzle's. Later the Jews are like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, that's not enough. (laughs) You know, kick it off a cliff. So that way they could be sure that their sins never came back to them. But why a Zazzle? Why is a goat given to a Zazzle? It's because all of that iniquity, all of that sin... Everything that's wrong with the world, God's like, I don't want that. (laughs) I don't want that. That's not me. I didn't make the world wrong. Give it away. Put it where it belongs. And where does it belong? It belongs with the demons. It belongs with the false gods. It belongs with everything else that's fallen and impure and wrong in the world. Send it to them. So Azazel gets his reward. Have Azazel take back on him all the curses he's lumped on you, lump it back on him. Everything that Satan's put on you, give it back to him. I don't want it here. And so that's the idea behind Azazel. You transfer all impurities onto a goat and you send it to the place where it belongs with the beings and the demons and the false gods who brought all that stuff upon humanity in the first place. So you have this weird story in the Bible of transference uh, of impurities onto animals. It's not the only time in the Bible you see it. There's actually a few other passages that seem to imply something similar. It's also just an ancient culture technique. As we look at some of the literature from the Hittites, the Mesopotamians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, guess what we find out? Many of them had this idea that you transferred sin and curses and things that were wrong in the world into an animal and then you killed the animal. You put it in an uninhabitable place like the desert or the water because that was where the demons dwelled. In fact, that was often uh, the water was often the place that other uh, ancient cultures sent these animals. So after they transferred things, they throw it in the water and then it would die with all their sins. Now. Everything I talked about—I know it sounds weird—but I think the passage we're going to jump into in Matthew today might suddenly be seen with fresh eyes. You ready for this? Yeah, we're ready. Cool. Let's do it. Matthew eight twenty-eight to thirty-four. Jesus was on the boat last week, right? Uh, being attacked almost by a demonic storm because he rebuked it. Usually, you rebuke demons, um, and Jesus conquers the chaos. He tells the chaos of this storm to shut up, and it stops. The storm's just done in his power, and we see elsewhere Jesus walk on the water to walk on chaos, to walk on demons, to show them, like, you got no power over me. That story continues immediately with Jesus' power over demons in today's passage. And he came to the other side, so he's getting off the boat, to the country of Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all their city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. See where I'm going with this? We've always been kind of like flustered by this story, like why are there pigs, why are thousands of pigs committing suicide? What on earth is going on here? I suggest that in an ancient mind, it wouldn't have been that startling. Jesus is doing something that they're familiar with. Transference of impurity onto an animal, tossing the animal into uninhabitable places. Jesus has just conquered the storm, and now he's conquering a legion of demons. This whole legion, which was like a very large unit, a very large army, that's what the word would be used for among the Greeks. So this very large army of demons come before Jesus, but as soon as they get before Jesus, what do they do? They raise the white flag, right? You think this whole army is going to attack Jesus, but as soon as they get up to him, they're like, please, we know you're just one guy, but don't torment us. Instead, throw us into those pigs. And it's as though Jesus has this plan being developed. Sure, the pigs. Yeah, we can do it that way. And so the demons are tossed into pigs. And the pigs are thrown down a, a steep... Uh, right here in Matthew, we saw him talking about like a steep drop. But it's really another... In Mark, you kind of get the idea of this steep drop being like a cliff. All the pigs are thrown off the cliff, down this steep drop, into the ocean, to where the demons dwell, to where the chaos is. They're all handed over to Azazel, if you will. Azazel can have what's his. That should be a very powerful story to us because Jesus is showing us that he has the ability to to take care of the demons and he has the ability to heal when he does that. Because what happens to the Gerasene demoniacs after that? These two guys who had all these demons, suddenly they're good. They were insane before. If you saw them today... I mean, they were naked, out in the tombs, cutting themselves with rocks and howling and screaming. Like, you saw someone like that today, you're going to put them in a mental hospital, right? Because that's what they had going on, mental illness in this case. Uh, And I'm not saying mental illness is always demonic, and not at all. Uh, But in this case, it was. And Jesus removes the demons, transfers the impurity into these pigs, tosses them off a cliff where they belong with Satan... And they're in their right mind again. They're good again. There has been healing that has come. Look, there was a, a, this becomes powerful even more so when you understand another Azazel. This other Azazel was not in the Bible. He was in a book called First Enoch. I know I've talked about this book before. If you're new here, you're like, what are you talking about? Okay, so there's this book called First Enoch. Your Bible references it several times. It's not Scripture but since your Bible writers had read it, sometimes their minds are illuminated by that book, and so it's helpful to know what First Enoch says in order to understand what your Bible writers are saying, OK? Um, so in First Enoch, there's a story of angels that come and have sex with human women and create an offbreed called the Nephilim, which are giants. Now, if that sounds crazy, this is actually in your Bible, okay? If you go to Genesis 6, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of women were attractive and they took for themselves wives and then they created the Nephilim. They gave birth to giants. Uh, You ever wonder about Goliath? He's one of the descendants of the Nephilim. Uh, Even though they were flooded with the flood in Genesis 6, you see the Nephilim return in Numbers 13. So there is this narrative throughout the Bible of giants that are kind of like satanic spawn of sorts. Uh, trying to overthrow humanity. Anyways, um, that is in your Bible, what I just said. What Enoch does, the book of First Enoch, written much, much later, not by Enoch, written by someone else, the book of First Enoch elaborates on that story. Who were these angels, and what did they do? And the way that uh, First Enoch saw it was that these angels... Um, Given the subject that we're on right now, we'll just give it a second here. <laughs> um, so in the book of First Enoch, these angels are seen as a, a group of uh, a bunch of angels, and their leader is named Azazel. Azazel is this head angel who tells all these other angels, look guys, uh, we've decided together that we're going to go and take up human wives. So who is in on this. We need to make a pact right now that we're going to hold ourselves to this. And so they all kind of agree, okay, we're going to hold ourselves to this. They then uh, create Nephilim. They teach people about astrology. They teach people about magic, enchantments, war, warfare, uh, supernatural weapons, and the list just goes on and on. The book of First Enoch essentially is saying like everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's messed up can be pinpointed on uh, partially these angels uh, that they taught humanity to sin in even greater ways. So here's where it's going to sound important to what we've been talking about today. Okay, First Enoch 10, 4-7, through seven, verse 8 says this. Eventually, uh, the flood comes on and it gets rid of the, the Nephilim. Their disembodied spirits, according to Enoch, are what demons are. Um, but the angels that made the sin were not Nephilim, so they had to be gotten rid of in a different way, not by the flood. Here's how they got rid of them. God told an archangel, Raphael, he told this angel, go bind Azazel hand and foot and throw him into the darkness. Open the desert that is in Dadul and throw him there. And place him under the rugged and sharp stones and let darkness cover him. Let him live there forever. Cover up his appearance and let no light be seen. For in the day of great judgment, he will be led away into the burning. That's uh, basically in Revelation, you have that lake of fire. That's what Enoch's referencing. The earth, and the, angels re, uh, the earth that the angels removed was healed, and the whole earth was destroyed and laid waste by the works of Azazel's teaching, ascribed to him, Azazel, all sins. We see some similarities here between what Jesus does with the Garesene demoniac and what Enoch's doing. In fact, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, when it tells the story, really works off of Enoch. Uh, similarity one. God sent Azazel to uninhabitable places in 1st Enoch. Jesus sent the demons, uh, the Gerasene demoniac, into uninhabitable places. Similarity two, the land was healed after Azazel was done away with, and the Gerasene demoniac was healed after the demons were dealt with. And finally, similarity three, all sins were ascribed to Azazel, and all of Gerasene's sins and iniquities, everything that was wrong with him, were ascribed to those demons that were in him. So you see, again, this idea that like the world is imperfect because it's not just neutral territory. There's spiritual warfare going on all around us. And sometimes in order to break free of of the sins and the problems that we have, we have to engage even in casting out demons. This is a sign of what Jesus is bringing. As he goes throughout the Gospels, he's casting out demons left and right, everywhere he goes. And then he tells his followers to do the same thing. And as you read through Acts, you see his followers cast out demons left and right. I've done it twice. I've been a part of groups that have cast out demons twice. I mean... This right here is a part of ministry because it's a part of getting rid of the the fallen world and ushering in God's new kingdom that has its fullness and its perfection, which eventually will come in the end times and its fullness. So the Garrison demoniac, and every time a demon's cast out, that's, that's a message to us about what's coming down the road. And Jesus had a message for Azazel. I know that sounds weird, but first Peter 3 actually used the book of Enoch to picture Jesus going and talking to Azazel. You ready for this? You've heard this passage before, but you didn't really know what to make of it. Likewise, pastors never preach on this passage because we didn't know what to make of it. But now that we understand it's a reference to Enoch, we get it. Here's what it says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Right here in Peter, here's what Peter imagined. When Jesus died and he was just a spirit, he was no longer in his physical body, Jesus, as a spirit, went to the prison where Azazel was put in First Enoch and all the other angels were put, and he proclaimed to them that judgment was coming. He's the new Enoch, okay? Enoch, uh, these angels asked Enoch, go ask God to let us go and forgive us. And Enoch went and asked God, and God was like, no, their judgment is settled. So Enoch went back and proclaimed to Azazel and his friends, no, this is where you stay. Your judgment is settled. Here comes Jesus in the three days where he's still just a spirit underground. He's no longer in his body. During that time, Peter says, Jesus went to Azazel and his friends and proclaimed to them, you thought you killed me. <laughs> you hung me on a cross. You're like, yeah, we got rid of God. Now we can break free of this prison. We, we've got our vengeance. We've got our, our, our revenge. And Jesus is like, no, your judgment is still the same. And then he grabs the keys of death and just whoop, <laughs> right heads back into a resurrected body. Uh, This is the strange story of Jesus in the afterlife in between the resurrection and when He passed away. Peter said that He went and told Azazel, He has not won. All sin and everything else is still attributed to Him. And for that reason, He will be thrown into the lake of fire along with uh, all the other false entities that messed up. And along with those of us as humans who decide that rather than follow the God of love and perfection... That we would rather partner with the zazzle and Satan and their like. That just puts us on a path to the same destiny. That's not what God wants. That's why we, we are constantly I mean, people look at evangelism as a oh, we don't want to hear about it. But like the reason we evangelize is because man, we don't we know God doesn't want anybody to end up in the lake of fire, to to partner with the false gods and with the demons, with the zazzle, with Satan. He wants people to experience love. It's what you were made for. And a stat just came out recently saying 40% of Christians think that it is wrong to evangelize. <laughs> I think it's more like we're scared to evangelize. But wrong, like this is the greatest story ever told. God loves everyone and he wants them all to be saved. And so if we want to pull them out of the grasp of a zazzle, we've got to tell people. Our lives need to speak it, our hearts need to speak it, and our mouths need to speak it as well so that we can proclaim over Azazel, just like Jesus did, your judgment is final, and we are here to, to snag as many human beings and bring them into the family of God as, as we can while we are here on this earth. So what's your suffering today? What are you dealing with? What's, what's the darkness, the iniquity? Maybe you got cancer, maybe it's, it's something else. Whatever the case might be. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe suicide is something that you struggle with thoughts of. Whatever the case may be, that's not God. In fact, that's part of the beautiful story of the goat to a zazzle. God's like, I don't want that stuff. I didn't bring that into this world. (laughs) I made Eden. I made this perfect place with my dwelling and my love. Don't, don't tell me that I'm making humans sick and, and I'm doing all these things to them and causing them to sin. Like, I don't want any of that. That's not me. That's the other guys. That's the enemy. Take that truth in today. If you've been holding aggression towards God, uh, vocalize that like Job did. So God can help you understand what reality is. And so that he can show you that he loves you and that nothing has power over him. No matter how extreme the chaos might be, he's bigger than it. Live in that truth and attribute the darkness. Even death itself was not supposed to be a thing, right? In the Garden of Eden, death came because we sinned. Sin and death belong to Satan, belong to Azazel. So attribute that to where it belongs. And likewise, send your sin away, like they did with the goat. I'm not telling you to go home to your dog tonight and be like, Come here, puppy. (laughs) Receive my sins. Now go into the streets of Jackson. That's not what I'm saying at all. But take it as a good metaphor, all right? Send your sins away, but then continue to make preparation so that it can't come back. We talked recently about pornography. Pornography. Use that as an example, right? It's not enough if you're addicted to pornography to just say, pornography, be gone. You have to make preparations that the addiction doesn't return. Like all addictions, with alcohol, with drugs, opioid epidemic, the things that we're caught up in. All of this, it's not just enough to say, okay, I'm done. You have to make preparations. I've got to install the software. I need to... Uh, make sure that I can't get to the liquor store anymore. I, I have to break off these people and block their phone numbers to make sure that I can't get a hold of them when I'm desperate. Make preparations so that the sin can't return to you. And that's what's often very hard because Azazel has a way of seducing us. Come back. Come back. But time and time again there's grace. Every year for... For Israel, They needed to remember every single year, let's send our sins away again. So it's not even just like this. I did it once, now I'm good. It's just every time I know that I'm imperfect. And God's grace and His mercies are what? They're new every morning. So soak that in. Band can come to the stage. We're going to sing the song that we just sang, which is uh, the whole album that that song comes on is based around... Do you mind killing that heat? Uh, is based around the uh, the idea that singing worship is spiritual warfare, uh, just like in uh, uh, Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Right? How do they tear down the walls with music? There's other stories where musicians go on the the line of war, and they become the their music becomes the weapon. So. Let's again, as I always say, let's build a throne for God right now uh, because God is enthroned on our praises. Let's give him the space to reign over Jackson. And as we create that, you and your own life, just turn whatever you got going on over to God. Ask for forgiveness. Know he forgives you. And then just that sin, give it to Satan. Let him take it. And God will remove it as far as the east is from the west. Which... They don't meet, by the way. (laughs) So remove it, let it go, and then create preparations for it not to come back as many times as it takes. Uh, We're going to worship. Uh, You take on whatever posture you'd like as we do this, but if you could, would you start by standing? Uh, There is a prayer team in the back corner who will be available to pray for anything, whether it's related to the message or something else. Kevin would be happy to pray for you.